Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we want to pray right now for your spirit to come and to help us as we dive into your word. We pray for understanding. We pray for deeper insight. But we pray most of all for hearts to be made receptive, to be soft and moldable, to be shaped according to the truth found in your word. Lord, thank you for the preaching of your word. We pray that through it, it that you may be glorified and your church edified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we've had quite a week, haven't we? We knew last Sunday that an Arctic freeze was on its way here, and we knew it was going to be cold, but I don't think anyone knew that so many of us would have to endure record lows for multiple nights without any power, with no central heating, and no running water. And pretty much every one of us has been affected by this storm in one way or another. And just like with Hurricane Harvey, which happened about three and a half years ago, and like with the pandemic that's been dragging on since last March, this catastrophic freeze reminds us of just how little control we have over the forces of nature. No matter how advanced our technology gets, no matter how high our standard of living rises, just like that, we can find ourselves sitting in the dark with candles flickering around us, huddled under thick layers of blankets just trying to stay warm. No lights, no TV, no Wi-Fi, pretty much no cellular service. We are humbled and rightly reminded that we are not in control. But you know, just like with Hurricane Harvey and like with the pandemic, these catastrophic events also provide an opportunity for our brotherly love to shine forth in the midst of darkness. I was out of power for a couple of days, so I was largely offline. But I did appreciate the few texts that actually were able to get through to me from members who were expressing concern for, for me and my family in the extreme cold, especially for, for our newborn. And when I finally was able to get internet access, I, I, I visited the, the GroupMe channel that we had created during the pandemic for, for members to communicate with one another. And I was pleased to see so many messages going back and forth. Members reaching out to one another to care for each other. Those without power offering, uh, those with power offering those without power a place to stay, to shelter from the cold. There, there was so much uh, sharing of advice on, on, on how to turn off your, your water main and, and sharing of, of um, advice on how to fix a broken leak or, or, or sharing uh, uh, the, the number of a plumber that you know of. Members were, were even helping each other out, cleaning up the mess that was caused by busted pipes. It was so encouraging to see that happening in the course of the last few days. Because that's just what a loving church does. That's what you would want to see in a flourishing church. Well, we have plenty more to do as individuals and as a city to recover from yet another natural disaster. So friends, that means that we have plenty more opportunities to show brotherly love to each other. And by the providence of God, it turns out that today's text in our series through 1 Thessalonians concerns brotherly love shared among a community of believers. 
Now, so far, uh, as we've uh, been uh, saying, that Paul wrote this letter not particularly to, call, to particularly to call out bad behavior or to confront false teaching in a church, like, like you do find in letters like 1 Corinthians. He was writing here mainly to express his gratitude that, that the Thessalonians were still walking strong in the Lord despite the persecution they were facing, persecution that had forced Paul to abruptly cut short his stay with them. So for the most part, this letter is expressing praise and thanksgiving for its recipients. But here, in chapter 4, Paul begins to address some concerns in the church. Now, these could be concerns that the Thessalonians themselves brought up to Paul in a prior letter, like you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Or their concerns that Timothy included in his report when he had come back uh, uh, from their city. Now, the first concern that is raised was a concern over brotherly love. Look there at verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love. Now, it's actually quite surprising that brotherly love was a concern among them since in earlier chapters, Paul was boasting about their love and about their reputation for being a loving church. And it just goes to show that really in the end, no church is perfect and that there's always room for growth in every church. Now, we, we saw last week that someone in the church was doing harm to the body, wronging a brother in a matter dealing with sexual immorality. Well, in today's text, we learn that there was a small minority in the church that was selfishly exploiting the kindness of others. Instead of valuing work, they had embraced a slothful attitude of idleness. And this unhealthy dependence on the generosity of others led to there being tension within this body. Paul says the solution to that tension is brotherly love. They need to show brotherly love more and more to one another. And in some cases, well, in some cases, that means learning how to say no to someone who's asking for a handout. And instead, to try to instill within them a Christian work ethic. It's like, you know, that saying that goes how you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. Well, it might sound cruel, but sometimes refusing to give an idle Christian what they're asking for can actually be an act of brotherly love. That, my friends, is a practical lesson that we can get out of this brief passage. Now, as we go into it, as we look at this passage more closely, what I want to do is to show you three principles concerning brotherly love. First, brotherly love calls us to treat one another as family. Second, brotherly love compels us to give generously to the needy among us. And third, brotherly love aspires to instill a healthy self-reliance and work ethic. So let's consider the first principle. First, brotherly love calls us to treat one another as family. Now that word, for brotherly love that you find there in verse 9 is a Greek word that I'm sure all of you are very familiar with. It's the word 
Philadelphia. Outside of the New Testament, in ancient Greek literature, Philadelphia was a term reserved for describing the love between family members, between siblings who share the same father, to be exact. So outside of Scripture, outside of the Bible, you'll never find the term extended to relationships beyond family. But that is exactly what Paul and the other biblical authors have done. And it's because in a very real sense, we are family. When you become a Christian, when you receive the new birth, when you are born again, you are born again into a new family where fellow Christians become your brothers and sisters. Now, you might be very familiar with the various analogies that the New Testament uses to describe the church. So you, you read in the, in the scriptures that the church is like a body, or each member is a constituent body part. Or the church is like a temple housing the Spirit of God, where each of us are the building blocks. Or the church is an embassy tasked with a mission on this earth to represent the, the, the kingdom come. And that's where Christians are like ambassadors for Christ. Or the church is like a bride, beautifully prepared by her bridegroom, where we collectively comprise the bride and we await for the return of our bridegroom and the marriage supper to come. Those are all very beautiful and and helpful analogies. But friends, Scripture is doing something different here when it describes the church as a family. That is not an analogy. There's no metaphor of comparison here. The church isn't like a family. No, the church is a family. Scripture isn't giving us an analogy. It's stating a fact. It's describing a new reality in Christ. Now, I realize, I realize that it doesn't always feel that way. I realize that your affection for your, your parents or, or siblings or your affection for your, your spouse and children feels much stronger and you feel much more connected with them than with any member of your church. Even your closest friends at church don't compare to how you feel towards your family. So I understand. I understand that many Christians, even at, at our church, are, are like strangers to you. You might recognize their face, but you don't know their name. You don't know really anything about them. And you certainly don't feel any affection. You don't feel any brotherly love for them. Look, I understand. It's very understandable. And that's because every Christian is still a work in progress. We're in a process It's a process called sanctification. And we talked about that in last week's passage. And in this process of sanctification, we're always trying to match how we feel with what we know to be true. So I know I'm justified in Christ. That's what the gospel tells me. I'm counted righteous in the sight of God because by faith I'm covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ but I don't always feel forgiven. 
in many days, I still feel guilty. So part of my sanctification is to start feeling forgiven and free just as I really am in Christ. Or I know I'm a child of God. That's what scripture says. I know I've been adopted by God through Christ, but I often still feel and act like an orphan. I don't feel safe and secure all the time. I I can still be walled off and and unwilling to, to love or to be loved. So that means part of my sanctification is to start feeling loved like a child of God, just as I really am in Christ. So it's understandable. If you don't, at this very moment, feel like a family with other Christians, if you don't love them as much as you do your own blood relations, it just means that you're still a work in progress. You're still working out your sanctification. Well, just as a Christian should never be content to continually feel like a guilty sinner or to feel like an unloved orphan, In the same way, we should never be content to continually feel little brotherly love or or little affection towards one another in the church. It may be how we feel right now, but how we feel doesn't necessarily reflect what is the reality. And part of working out our salvation is to match how we feel to that reality. That's what Paul taught in every church that he visited and every church that he planted. And that's what we could assume, and that's why he could assume this shared understanding when he wrote this letter. Let me just read verse 9 again. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So Paul felt no need to provide further instruction on brotherly love and, 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 and how it calls us to treat each other like family because the believers have been taught by God to love one another. Now that, that phrase, taught by God, that's one of those new Greek words that, that Paul probably coined. It's, it's, it's putting together the word God and teach. It literally says, you've been God taught. Considering how Paul mentioned a verse earlier that the Holy Spirit had been given to them, by God taught, he probably meant the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells within every believer, who was sent by Christ to teach his disciples by bringing to remembrance all that Christ had said. And we know in Romans 8 verse 16, Paul says it's the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we are brothers and sisters in the same family of God. So church, in the same way, I don't, need, I don't think that you need me to tell you that we're family. You already know that. You've been God taught. He teaches you through the pages of scripture He teaches you through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You know we are brothers and sisters and that we ought to feel a brotherly love towards one another. But what we need is to work on feeling that way 
and treating each other that way. That's the work of sanctification. That's the process that the same Holy Spirit will enable and will empower in us as we walk in step with him. You know, no new Christian immediately starts off loving other believers like family. Everyone has to grow into that. We have to mature into this to learn, to recognize, and to respect the biblical duty that we have towards each other. And especially, we, especially those of us who grew up influenced by that, that rugged individualism that's so cherished in, in American culture, we in particular, those of us growing up here in the West, in America, might struggle with and, and even resist the idea that we have a duty to our church family that takes priority over our own personal ambitions and preferences. We have a hard time accepting that. And that is exactly why I love being in a bicultural church where we who are more shaped by a Western culture can be influenced by our brothers and sisters who are more shaped by an Eastern culture where filial piety is one of the highest virtues. Where That means where you are taught growing up to prioritize your duty to family over your own ambitions. I think a good illustration of this difference between these two cultures is to consider two Disney films that convey these two distinct cultural values. In The Little Mermaid, the heroine's story arc is all about chasing true love, even if it means abandoning your responsibility to family and leaving your home altogether for good. But in Mulan, the heroine's story arc is about setting aside personal ambition and putting family first. In, in the recent live action um, adaptation, the film even ends with filial piety being added as a fourth virtue, in addition to being brave, loyal, and true. So the message there is that being true to yourself doesn't trump your duty to family. Actually, being true to yourself is only discovered through recognizing your communal identity and respecting your duty to that larger community. And I think that's one of those values in Asian culture that Scripture doesn't confront, but actually affirms and, and expands upon. The gospel expands upon that category of family and now includes not just your blood relations, but the people of God. So now, in the way you feel a sense of duty and responsibility to, to care for your parents or to care for your siblings, you have a similar duty to one another as members of the church. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, quote, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to the church. That word especially conveys 
a sense of duty, a, a priority that we have towards the family of God, towards our brothers and sisters in the faith to show them a particular brotherly love. Now, what does that actually look like on a practical level? How should we practically display this kind of brotherly love to each other? Well, that's where we turn to our second principle that we can draw from our text. Second, brotherly love compels us to generously give to the needy among us. That's what the Thessalonians had a reputation for doing, and that's what Paul encourages them to do even more and more. Listen to verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So what we already learned about the Thessalonians from previous messages is that they had gained a reputation for brotherly love through their radical generosity. They gladly took part in an international relief effort that Paul was organizing. Back in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, we're told that there was a prophet who prophesied in the Antioch church where Paul was stationed, and that he said that there would be a great famine coming. And then we're told in verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And Paul and Barnabas were given the responsibility to carry out this relief effort among all the Gentile churches to help practically meet the needs of Jewish Christians who were living in Judea, especially in Jerusalem. So just think about it. The same Apostle Paul, whom we all know was passionate about gospel preaching and evangelizing, the same Paul was equally passionate about mercy ministries, and about helping meet practical needs, especially among the household of faith. And the Thessalonian church shared in his passion. Not only were they giving generously to meet the needs of fellow church members, they were showing brotherly love to other Christians in churches throughout their province, throughout Macedonia. Christians that they didn't even know personally, they didn't know their names. They didn't know their faces. But what they did know is that they were family. What they did know is that they were brothers and sisters in Christ and that they had a filial duty to help each other. Friends, this biblical version of filial piety envisions that in a healthy church where brotherly love is flourishing, there will be no Christian among us who remains in need because we'll be taking care of each other like family should. In the book of Acts, we're given glimpses of this actually being worked out in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, we read about the church in Jerusalem. Quote, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we read another description of the church in Acts 4, verses 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That, my friends, is what brotherly love looks like in practice. When it flourishes among us, there will not be a needy person among us. Now, I think as a church, this calls for us to take a deep look in the mirror. Are we willing to tolerate the fact that there is a needy person among us? A fellow brother or sister in Christ who is suffering and in need of help? Now, I I doubt we would tolerate it if we learned that our elderly parents were suffering or if we were to discover that our children are, are hurting and in need, we would immediately rush to their aid. We would do what it takes to, to meet their needs. Why then would we tolerate unmet needs within the body of Christ? Likely because we still don't recognize each other as family. And we don't feel that filial duty to love and to care for each other like family. Friends, the difficulties that we experienced this past week, I think, have provided ample opportunity for us to put this kind of love, this kind of brotherly love into practice, into meeting very practical needs for each other. I'm certain that we have church members who have busted pipes and leaky ceilings who still need your help right now. Whether you're skilled with your hands to assist in repairs, or you're just generous in your resources to offer financial aid, I'm sure there are ways that you can help each other this coming week. That's why I'm just so thankful that our church does have a benevolence ministry, which is designed to help each other in financial distress. And last year, I I was just so pleased that we had set up a COVID-19 relief fund to help those who had lost employment during the pandemic. May, May there not be a needy person among us. That's what our church is, is, is trying to do, to make sure that there are no needy people among us. And you know, our brotherly love should not be reserved just to the members of our church. Like the Thessalonians, we should extend that love to other churches, to brothers and sisters in Christ across town and, and, and across the globe. Even if, even if we don't know their names, even if we don't know their faces, all we need to know is that we are one in Christ and that we are members together of the same family of God. So church, what is it going to look like for us to show love to other churches? Now, I I was encouraged to hear uh, uh, the financial report last Friday in our membership meeting and to hear about how we ended the year with a $300,000 operating surplus since so many ministry expenses never materialized in 2020 due to the pandemic. So last Saturday, the church council formed an ad hoc committee to determine how we're going to best steward that surplus. Now, I personally think it's prudent for us to consider internal needs 
since we can already forecast a number of expenses related to facility repair that are coming down the line. And we already have the ball rolling on our building expansion plans. And I think there's good reason to save a portion of that surplus for future expenses that we know are coming. But at the same time, at the same time, there are so many smaller churches in our city and across our country and throughout the world that are equally faithful to gospel ministry, but were hit much harder by this pandemic. Some of them closed their books for 2020 deep in the red. We should be so thankful that we actually have a surplus. So let us pray for wisdom and how to steward our surplus with the guiding principle of brotherly love for our own people's needs, but also for the needs of other churches within the larger family of God. Now, as we continue in our text in verses 11 to 12, we actually get to Paul's main concern here, which really was to gently correct a small minority of believers in the church who were exploiting kindness and embracing idleness. Now, at first glance, I know it seems like verses 11 and 12 just kind of take up a brand new topic about work and idleness, but actually they're connected to this exhortation on showing brotherly love more and more. So this is the third principle that we can draw. Brotherly love aspires to instill in each other a healthy self-reliance and Christian work ethic. Now, let's just be upfront and admit that there definitely exists an unhealthy form of self-reliance that should be avoided. We already hinted at that rugged individualism that American culture tends to elevate where I don't need anyone, I can do it myself, where I don't feel a sense of filial duty or communal responsibility, that attitude, that attitude can, can be described really as a prideful self-reliance. It's not something that we should be encouraging in each other. But there is a healthy self-reliance that Scripture does support. That's derived from a work ethic that sees work itself not as a curse, but as a gift from God. Listen to verses 11 to 12. After urging them to show brotherly love more and more, Paul says, verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this idea of living quietly is not being contrasted with living noisily, as if being boisterous and and talkative is the concern here. No, the concern is to live a respectable life that doesn't cause unnecessary disruption or problems in the community. Remember, Paul's already aware of how much attention there uh, is being drawn to the church leading to persecution. He doesn't want them to draw any more unnecessary attention to bring on any more suffering. So this idea of living quietly, it it goes on to fit neatly with the next phrase of minding your own affairs. 
Now, I, I know whenever you hear, you know, someone say, mind your own affairs or mind your own business, when we say that, the, the tone is, is typically negative. It's like saying, you know, stop being so nosy. But that's not the message being conveyed here in the Greek. It just means to keep yourself occupied with your own work so as not to grow overly dependent on one another. Notice how that's actually stressed at the end of verse 12, about not being dependent on one another. This just makes sense as Paul goes on to to urge them to work with your hands. Now, in Greek culture, manual labor was despised. It it was seen as inferior. Working with your hands was for servants. It, It was for the artisan class. And so there must have been some in the church who shared that same sentiment. They refused to work when they were capable of doing so, and instead were living off the generosity of others. And Paul says that is unloving, not only because you're exploiting kindness, but you're also diverting needed resources away from those who are truly in need, who are truly helpless. Now, in our text, you can tell that Paul was approaching this problem in the church with a rather light touch. He's, he's couching his correction in a lot of pastoral encouragement, you know, praising them for their flourishing love. Because he was hoping that, that the small minority among them that was exploiting kindness and embracing idleness, that they would see that brotherly love should compel them to repent of that attitude and to work with their own hands and to provide for themselves. He was hoping that was the message that they would get. But apparently... They didn't get the message. And so by his second letter to them, Paul has to be much more explicit and to offer a much stronger rebuke. And so listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies, Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So do you see how that text helps us to understand and interpret what he's saying in this morning's text? So here's here's the big picture. Brotherly love calls for us to financially help those among us who are truly in need, who are truly helpless on their own. We're talking about those who don't have blood relations around, who are able to take care of them when they themselves are unable to care for them, take care of themselves. And so in the scriptures, the widow and the orphan would epitomize this category of needy persons those who simply cannot help themselves and don't have others, don't have blood relatives to help them. So Paul made sure that the churches that he planted had an intentional ministry within these churches to care for the widows and orphans that are truly helpless. So for example, in 1 Timothy, he gives Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, he gives him instructions on how to care for widows in the church, widows who are in distress. But he goes on in that same chapter to teach Timothy to distinguish the true widows who are in need from idle busybodies who need to actually be rebuked. So 
while there is a genuine need for a spirit of generosity in the church and for a ministry of benevolence, there is also a need for wisdom to distinguish the needy from the idle. In our efforts to help the truly helpless, we have to be careful not to enable those who are exploiting kindness and embracing idleness. Instead, what we should be doing, our efforts should be aimed at teaching those particular people to value the dignity of work, to instill within them a Christian work ethic that that comes from recognizing that work is fundamentally not a curse from God, but it's actually a gift to mankind. Adam and Eve were commissioned to work in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, before the curse of sin fell upon creation in Genesis 3. So work itself is not a curse. But on this side of the fall, like with so many other things, work is cursed. It's not a curse in itself, but it has been cursed. It can be now painful and tiresome. The earth, we're told, is stingy in giving up its crops and instead produces four thorns and thistles. That makes work hard. Now, I know hearing that might make an idle Christian more inclined to despise, to despise you know, work all the more. But that's where that same Christian must remember that the same God who put work under a curse is the same God who sent his son into the world to get to work. Jesus came and he had a job to do. His work involved carrying a heavy cross and then climbing up onto it. And by doing so, he took upon himself the curse of sin which includes not only the curse of our eternal condemnation as sinners, but also the curse of works, pain, and futility. That means Jesus not only redeemed us from the curse, he redeemed work itself. And now, as the redeemed, those who have been redeemed in Christ Jesus, we can approach work as a means to glorify God and to love one another. So long as we are able, we should be diligently working to provide for our own needs and that of our household to develop a healthy self-reliance so that the truly helpless among us, I'm talking about those in our church family who can't support themselves so that they may be the beneficiaries of our benevolence ministries. And also, through working, we have now the means to generously give in order to fund those very ministries. So this, you know, not only is a way to show love to one another in the church, this also shows a compelling witness to non-believers in the community around us. In verse 12, Paul says, we do this so that we may walk properly before outsiders. You see, when we show brotherly love 
by generously giving to the needy among us, which is enabled by having developed a healthy self-reliance and work ethic, the world is going to take notice. Let me just conclude by sharing two amazing quotes from the perspective of outsiders looking in on the early church. The first quote comes from a Greek historian named Lucian. And and this guy despised Christians. He wasn't a Christian. He despised Christianity. But he, but he, he had to admit, quote, It is incredible to see the fervor which, with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their head that they are brethren. They treat each other as family. And non-Christians notice and find that to be incredible. Now, the second quote comes from Tertullian, and he's actually an early church father, but he's telling us about how the Roman world would speak of Christians. And so he says, quote, It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how these Christians love one another. Friends, would you pray with me that by God's grace, those words might be spoken of us by the non-believing community around us. May our care for the helpless among us, may that kind of brotherly love brand us in the eyes of outsiders. So that though they may not yet believe in our Christ, may they be compelled to say, look, look how these Christians love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you will continue by your spirit to work out our sanctification as individual disciples and as a collective church, so that this kind of love, this brotherly love, will truly flourish among us, so that the watching world, the non-believers around us in our lives, may look at our life together as the church, may, may look at our love and generosity, helping to meet needs so that there is no needy person among us. May they see that. May they see your love and know that we are your disciples. And may they be compelled to experience that love for themselves. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son into our world to do a job that we could not do to redeem us from our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins. And not only that, but to redeem us from the curse and to redeem this world from the curse, to redeem our work from the curse. And so as we go back this coming week to our workplaces, to our campuses, 
as we try to, to pick ourselves back up after a very difficult week, I pray, Lord, that we engage our work out of the belief that Jesus has come and he has done the hardest work for us. He has paid it all for us so that we can now go about our work as a way to glorify you and as a way to truly show love to one another. Send us back out into the world, O Lord, with that mindset. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.